Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. This is the first episode in a multi-part series focusing on the California Environmental Quality Act, also known as CEQA, which is intended to inform government decision makers and the public about the potential environmental impacts of proposed activities and to prevent significant and avoidable environmental damage. To kick off the series, we feature Kristen Blackson, a senior CEQA project manager with Harrison Associates, where she manages projects with the goal of making CEQA compliance an efficient part of the process rather than a roadblock. As an expert in the ever-changing world of CEQA, Kristen is constantly researching and reviewing regulations to make the process of disclosing environmental impacts seamless for agencies. She shares her expertise as a professor for the UCSD Extension CEQA Certificate Program, teaching introductory and advanced courses. She's also co-chair of the AEP Legislative Committee, where she has successfully advocated for the revising and creating CEQA legislation that benefits practitioners and the public throughout California. These roles combine to keep Kristen on the leading edge of CEQA, uniquely positioning her to solve challenging problems. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel. And today's guest is Kristen Blackson. Thank you so much for being with the Environmental Leadership Chronicles. Let's start as we always do. How are you connected with AEP? Uh, With AEP, I am currently serving as a director at large. I also am co-chair of the AEP Legislative uh, Committee. We work with our lobbyists in Sacramento on uh, the latest and greatest bills uh, in coming down from Sacramento uh, that have to do with CEQA and land use and planning. Yeah, so, but I have been with AEP since I started my career, you know, 20-ish plus years ago. Um, started getting involved with the basics, like planning the parties and uh, the awards ceremonies and it's such a good organization. I loved doing that because of the students. Uh, we gave away scholarships every year at the award ceremony. So that was always great to know that we were doing something good and not just getting together all dressed up. EP has good parties. I will say that I've been to a few. (laughs) Great. So Kristen, will you walk us through, I guess, kind of your start, like what initially attracted you to the environmental field and, you know, did you study it in school and what was your first job and kind of just on a uh, condensed path or sorry, condensed explanation of your path and where you got to where you're at today. Sure. I, I always think I'm a little bit unique in that I always wanted to do something with environmental science and environmental studies. Um, I entered UC Santa Barbara as an environmental science major plus dance major. I was actually wanted to be a ballerina, but um, my dad convinced me to... <laughs> drop the double major and just go for environmental science. Um, And so that's what I did. And I never wavered. I was, I I kind of, I felt fortunate in my decision-making because I had a lot of friends that didn't know what they really wanted to do when they got to college and took several different classes. And then, you know, at the end of it, we're like, oh, I could do environmental sciences. Um, So I did that um, from UC Santa Barbara and, um, then I left the country for quite a while and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I moved to uh, Costa Rica and uh, started running this school with my best friend. And um, after, you know, a year or so being down there, I came back to, you know, the real world, like I call it. And I um, 
I started investigating jobs and it was there that I realized that um, by having a master's, uh, it would probably be a lot better uh, as far as employment in the environmental field. So that's when I went to University of San Francisco, uh, obtained my master's in science, and I got my job at the County of San Diego as an environmental trainee. Um, so everything was environmental, everything was on along the right tracks, except for that brief stint in the jungle. Uh, I think it's a great stint in the jungle. Maybe it gave you uh, some perspective on life and uh, got you grounded and also elevated at the same time, I'm sure. And um, at the County of San Diego, that's where I first came across your name. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were not an environmental trainee at that time. Walk us through (laughs) uh, how you advanced through the county and some of the big projects that you At the county, uh, when I started there, it was definitely sink or swim. Um, And maybe when you started there as well, Laurel, but it was one of those things where it was, uh, you were hired and you sat down and then they were given a stack of folders of projects. And, um, and I, my, my, my job was to process those projects with, you know, the CEQA process in mind. Um, and I had learned about CEQA and I had taught, I um, had some CEQA classes, certainly. But the only way I think to learn and to understand CEQA is actually what happened to me is just sink or swim. Just start doing it. Uh, get out your book. I think it's really close by. Um, <laughs> you don't know a term, just bring it out. Uh, yeah, start to look it up, see the, you know, the context of it in the guidelines. And then that's how I started to do CEQA. Um, and then I, you know, moved up through the ranks um, as I, we also had an opportunity at the county to review EIRs. Some of our, ta- some of our staff was focused on reviewing o- only EIRs and I was very interested in that. So I started to do that and um, CEQA became my specialty at as just kind of default. And, um, and yeah, and I mean, I'll add to your background that you became a regular instructor. Sorry, my microphone keeps popping in and out. I'm just going to switch this. Cut that, cut that, cut that. There we go. You became an instructor. <laughs> Sorry about that. Thanks, technical difficulties. You were an instructor in the CEQA advanced workshops. And did you do CEQA basics and stuff too? I remember you being a regular panelist in the CEQA workshop. Yes, I did a few workshops, uh, a few AP workshops, um, basics and and advanced workshops. And um, as the planning manager in charge of CEQA for the County of San Diego, you know, people thought that uh, we knew what we were doing for a minute and I was going around (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> speaking on such things often. Um, but uh, through my employment there, working on big projects and little projects um, and MNDs and defending uh, defending MNDs and all sorts of different projects, but that had controversy for such different reasons is really how I learned um, m- the basics and the advanced elements of CEQA. Um, it's very difficult now that I am an instructor of CEQA, I teach at UC San Diego extension courses. 
I teach advanced and introduction to CEQA. And what everyone is always longing for is those real world examples of, you know, well, I've got this project (laughs) and here are the circumstances, you know, and you can't learn to do that without having project after project um, be in front of you. So that was a great learning experience. Yeah, that's as funny as you said that I was thinking, I was like, ooh, tell me about some of the more complex projects and which I'm sure you'll get into. And so something that I just kind of wanted to get more in down the CEQA path is that, you know, we're kicking off the CEQA series for our podcast and AEP is very involved in education and communication on CEQA. And so for you, based on all of your experience and as a CEQA practitioner, we, we want to hear from you about like CEQA, all these stories and all the things and, and what CEQA, the value that it adds to the state of California and our environment. And so I think, you know, most of the people, I shouldn't say most, some of the people listening are environmental professionals and know CEQA like up, down, left, right, back, front. But for those of us who don't, <laughs> could you maybe give just a, a a relatively brief overview of CEQA, and then we can start to get into more of the how it really impacts our environment. Sure. So way back when, um, before I was born, <laughs> in a time before me, there was a time before CEQA. And when CEQA in the 70, in the 70s, when it was enacted in 1970, I think, um, and AP, our association, is actually exactly my age, 1974. Um, so it's all around 50 years. And before 50 years, things were just done not only in back rooms, but um, of, of counties and jurisdictions uh, without public input. But they were also done with only certain considerations given, like title. Uh, building codes, you know, uh, just this person of access, never, they were never thinking about the habitat they were destroying or um, the emissions that they were making or, you know, the the public resources that they were um, utilizing and setting aside to be utilized for years to come without thinking about those things. Um, so there, so the purpose of CEQA is to number one, disclose impacts and uh, of, of the environment and to mitigate for those impacts. And to two, to involve the public, to make sure that there is a public process to this. So where CEQA I think has gone wrong and where people believe CEQA to have to be is that CEQA is supposed to be a solution for all of planning. And that's not the that's not the case. A CEQA cannot solve for bad planning. Um, CEQA cannot solve for a project in the wrong location. Um, CEQA can only simply disclose those impacts and make sure that the public and the neighbors and the stakeholders and the decision makers are aware of all the ramifications to what they're deciding to do. So I think. You know, so when I first got to the county of San Diego uh, in 2000, exactly, I was um, looking at older CEQA documents, and these were even from the 80s. So CEQA had already been around for about a decade, and they were EIRs that were one page. They were (laughs) typed up and, you know, on one page, and it just had the project description, you know, the acreage. 
the, you know, the general plan and, you know, the new parcel numbers, if it was a subdivision. And then um, some of it would just close, you know, the habitat and, and mitigate and, and then just um, disclose what habitat there was, you know, um, because this is before the MSA, the multiple species conservation program, which we have in Southern California. Um, so in a world without CEQA down here, we still have MSCP, but back then they had nothing. They didn't have CEQA, they didn't have MSCP. So nothing was mitigated. And, um, and I wanna say mitigated, but also planned for resources um, and public resources in terms of wastewater, roads, uh, water supply, um, was just given away willy-nilly to areas without consideration for planning or um, nearby resources, um, which in turn caused, I think, a lot of sprawl, especially in, in Clovis, or excuse me, especially in California and Clovis, where I come from. So one of the reasons why I am an environmentalist and why I sat in my high school and wanted to go to UC Santa Barbara to be an environmental scientist was because of the poor planning that I saw in the Central Valley, in the San Joaquin Valley. We were a small little, tiny little town um, with tons of ag, just very, very, very rural. And as you know, when I grew up, just tract home development after tract home development would spawn out and they were not in the right places. Um, so that meant, you know, our roads had, they were all country roads. They had to be blown out to be four lanes. Um, and it was just, you know, sprawl everywhere in a place that really had real, real resource, um, problems like our groundwater, um, our air in the central Valley. Um, yeah, air and groundwater are big. Yeah, I'm listening to you and I'm nodding profusely for those that are just listening to the audio and not watching the video. I'm nodding because um, when you say, oh, they, projects were proposed in the right place, there wasn't planning and CEQA doesn't solve for, for bad planning. It just doesn't. And that's why I think is a key reminder is there's a difference between urban design, urban planning, uh, city planning, community planning, um, that kind of long range land use planning than environmental planning and CEQA and, and environmental permitting. There is a difference. I did do a slightly controversial panel at an AEP conference way back when, where I was like, CEQA is not a sustainability tool. It's, yeah. it's back end. It's, it's, you've already got this project. It's already been planned and designed. So let's, anal let's analyze the impacts of it. Whereas true sustainability planning or proper urban design or, um, regenerative design, if you will, it happens on the front end. You're thinking about where is this community going to go? What kind of resources is it going to use? If we have this kind of density and this amount of people using this, these trucks and these cars and these schools and these systems and, and wastewater systems, are we going to be overloaded? Is our, does our landfill have enough space? Do we have a recycling center? How far away is it? Like that thoughtful planning, that's not what CEQA does. CEQA is to disclose, as you said, in a public process and talk about the impacts of the project. Yeah. So my question to you, Kristen, is are there specific projects you've worked on or things that you've seen in the media that says, oh, we'll just get rid of CEQA because it's not planning our communities properly. And 
or let's just get, let's use CEQA to get rid of this project because it's not cited properly. What would you say to those arguments or do you have practical examples where CEQA is misused to solve problems that it didn't cause? Yeah. So I think, um, I think number one, everybody's right. You know, CEQA is not perfect and CEQA needs reform. That's true. And for anyone, you know, a practitioner or not to say that, that it doesn't need renal reform, I think is, you know, incorrect. But what it doesn't need is to be thrown out altogether. And that's what I find is so interesting now with the arguments that I hear nowadays is that it comes from the far right conservative um, Republicans in Sacramento, the legislators there, who um, often every year have an all-encompassing gut CEQA bill. And then just the chatter out there, the former, the governor that just, um, the Republican governor that just ran for, during the recall, I can't remember his name, but his big thing was throw out CEQA. Uh, It doesn't work. Then we have the Berkeley case and the Berkeley um, decision that just came about two, two months ago, which, in 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 the, in its beginnings, sent seemed to have shut down at least three thousand students from attending Berkeley because they threw out their plan because um, of area residents that were trying to stop development in Berkeley, right? So those people that that are progressive end of California, they were also saying CEQA is what's stopping housing. Let's throw out CEQA. So I think that's so important to identify the fact that we are now full circle with the, the with the aspects of our with our um, with our society that want to throw CEQA out. And I and I think that's a huge, huge, huge mistake. Um, but we have to remember that CEQA is used uh, as as you know, the, the public participation part of CEQA has, has come into effect and they are, it is used to stop projects. And what I like to re, re, uh, remind everyone is that yes, it does stop certain projects and it also stops projects that supposedly were bad planning projects. Um, and in some instances, the lit- the litigation that goes on actually makes those projects better. Uh, you do get the mitigation or some of the inactions out of the developers that you wouldn't have got if there was no CEQA. So sometimes CEQA makes projects better. Um, I see CEQA used as a tool a lot as the, at the County of San Diego um, they're, they are very risk averse when it comes to CEQA, but there was a project that everyone defended and it was uh, because it was a Buddhist temple. I don't know, Laurel, if you remember when you were at the county, but it was the Daiding Meditation Center. And I could use the terms, I use this in my class as an example of mitigated negative declarations and how the fair argument is sometimes used. The fair argument, as some of our secret practitioners understand it to be, is a very thin line of argument that will have a project go from an MND or an ND to an EIR, which, which is a very large, complicated, and expensive process. So for these Buddhist monks who are trying to get their temple built, 
um, it was not an option. Uh, if they had to complete an EIR, um, they, they wouldn't have gotten their temple built. It was a small little, you know, nonprofit organization. And all the arguments against it were not about the environment. They were um, about the temple itself and the population around in Bonzel didn't want this population living there. So that's important to understand is that's, yeah, CEQA can be used at that end as well. And fair argument exists. Uh, those standards exist for that type of, uh, that type of project. It was not going to have a significant impact. So we defended that and the county defended that. And I was very proud because a lot of risk averse counties and jurisdictions may have backed out and saw the opposition and said automatically in the IR. But so that's one thing. And that's another thing when it comes to housing is that jurisdictions have to be strong. They have to use CEQA. They have to use their exemptions. And um, and um, despite the controversy that may exist, uh, we have spent in in um, the legislation the last five years the working on a lot of CEQA exemptions for streamlining, for housing, for affordable housing. Um, for infill housing, they're not perfect, um, but they're there and they need strong jurisdictions to stand up and to use. So when I hear opponents of CEQA saying, throw it out, throw it out, I always say, hey, maybe it's time to start using it. <laughs> it's there. Don't throw it out. Use it and defend it um, and substantiate your evidence, which is what we always say. And so what would a world look like that doesn't have CEQA? Um, I would think it'll look, uh, I don't know if I could say this, but like Florida or Texas, you know, are they don't? <laughs> technically, <laughs> um, I have friends in Florida who are of the sustainable mind, you know, and they are, um, they're devastated to see the development and how it is, you know, the wetlands and, and, and what they really need to be sustainable in Florida more than, you know, just the topography, they need those wetlands. And uh, what they're doing is just gobbling up the wetlands without um, any mitigation, without any thought, without planning. So they're losing a lot of their uh, sea level rise, but, you know, they're very vulnerable. Um, and also they have, you know, they don't have, they don't check as much for geology and soils. So they have a lot of sinkholes, you know, they, they just, they just, it's just poor planning. Um, I think um, you would also have a, a world without CEQA, you would have a lot of, lot of unhappy uh, taxpayers and constituents um, who wouldn't have the opportunity that CEWA provides to have that regular input. Um, you know, our, some of our stakeholders at the county and those, all the projects that I work with, these people are, you know, they're regular folks who are involved in their community and they want to be heard and they want to have input. And the better that you do that, the better process that you have. So I think in a world without CEQA, you would have a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, folks without uh, a public path. So CEQA then 
the way I'm hearing you say this and is this, it's like a vehicle to prevent poor planning from a public standpoint. Is that? It helps. Yes. Yeah. I mean, poor planning you're saying is like, yeah, I can't yeah, like, we, yeah, you were saying that, well, it doesn't CEQA doesn't solve or it's not a solution for poor, for poor planning. And then as you're saying, well, it provides a chance for like public engagement and the community to be involved in planning. And when there's other states that don't have this type of um, act, that it allows the community to speak up and say there's a vehicle or a process for the community to speak up and be like, hey, this doesn't make sense. Or what about this wetland? What about this pond? What about this like ingress, egress, traffic, whatever? Mm-hmm. So you get a chance to speak up. Um, whereas if you didn't have that, it might be, it's like you, it sounds like it could be potentially like a free for all. Like there's, there's some regulation, but there's no, you're not really beholden to the public. Yeah. I mean, they would have to insert, like, think of um, a development, you know, without a CEQA document would be proposed at the county or the city and it would go through and the staff would adjust it and they would, you know, they would still have building codes in San Diego. They would still have certain, you know, bio resource ordinances that would apply, but then, you know, they would have a public hearing and that would be notified but the public would have to, you know, be checking out the board of supervisors and the planning commissioners and and all of their notices every week, um, and then they would be able to go and speak at the decision. Um, but that, to me, is you know, kind of a defunct process because at that time, when you're making a decision about a project, is hard to get public input and actually incorporate it into. With CEQA, we have public input on a project and its inputs at uh, at the beginning of an EIR process, during an EIR process, after an EIR process, and during the hearing of an EIR. And those are for, you know, the more major controversial projects. Um, Going to, I think something that'll bring this together is one of the questions that you have is, what is my favorite environmental policy? And I would say mine is everything that's um, associated with vehicle miles traveled or greenhouse gases, because that for the first time ties in good planning to CEQA, right? Because to have a good vehicle miles traveled project means that you're developing in the right location, um, at, you know, at the right time so that people, you know, have transit, people can walk to where they want to work, people can walk, you know, to their, to their um, services. So, and then same with greenhouse gases, greenhouse gas is the first thing that took us or that, that locked in a location, um, a project's location to its impacts forever and ever. And you cannot mitigate out of that because for example, if you have a project that's going to be located way out in the middle of nowhere in the County, it is forever uh, committing vehicle miles traveled and emissions um, back and forth to public centers, you know, forever and ever, as long as that project exists and you cannot mitigate that. There's just no way to mitigate that. Uh, You can't, you you can plant a, million trees and you will still not mitigate those uh, emissions that are going to go on for the lifetime of that project. Um, 
So those those are the two planning, there's two CEQA thresholds, you know, that are guidelines that I think tie um, good planning together as much as we can with CEQA. And um, I come from a stance that we can, the best way to, best way to conserve our resources and our environment is to build really great cities um, and urban design and, you know, design matters. And if you're getting all those things together, then we can set aside, you know, the areas in Clovis that I really liked that are now taken up by track tones. Well, so with that urban, or sorry, Laurel, did you want to chime in? I'm just like, tell me more. Like you guys live in this world and I'm like, let's get into this. And so something, as you were saying that like good urban design, what are some examples of areas that you think have great urban design? Um, great urban design, like a great city that's clean and awesome. Um, or neighborhood too of a city. Well, and Laurel loves it too, is Santa Barbara. But everybody hates Santa Barbara because it's like gross. And they like they have a very you know high cap on their or on their or very low cap on growth, and they also have high restrictions for development. Everything has to look the same. Um, so that's not. I don't know if that's a great. I just love it there, and I like it's hard. It. No, it's, it's, a, it's, a it's not true or false. You're good. <laughs> it's it's hard because. It, you know, there's clean water, clean air. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got in Santa Barbara, we've got some traffic issues because the Caltrans 101 is being upgraded and all that. But the strong no growth policies and the design standards, my family's in development. We we make we build family residences and restaurants, and it it is very challenging, very expensive. And yeah. so the community character in Santa Barbara is very, you know, one way. Um, it's not terribly diverse. So mm-hmm. you sacrifice some things for other things. And yeah. uh, I really, in my opinion, when I studied urban design under Kristen's husband, Howard, the, this, the community that I thought was really well designed actually in San Diego is Ocean Beach. Um, it's designed in a way to take advantage of the ocean air and the breeze so that you don't need air conditioning systems and you don't have electricity usage or emissions from air conditioning. And um, from a community engagement perspective, there are more uh, churches, libraries, and open spaces proposed per block than any other community in San Diego. And there's a lot of um, businesses that can be accessed from the corners instead of yeah. just the storefronts being on the flat streets. So you're getting people engaging from the alley, from the side, from the front, from the beach. Um, and some of the design considerations or, or constraints there is there's just not enough uh, grassy parks to meet the park land use ordinances. And, you know, there's just a lot of density, but it it, um, I lived there for 17 years and I can, I can say that it was a highly engaged community, like people really talking with each other, people really living with each other, oftentimes yeah. in conflict, but at least it got people um, a part of the public process. Those town council meetings were packed full of people. We did the Ocean Beach community plan it was packed full of people. Um, but and I also want to throw in, I think that one of the best cities is Amsterdam, just because it's just brilliantly beautiful and clean and walkable. I haven't been. Yeah. 
You better um, get a business trip there for research purposes. <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, south of France. Yeah. I, I, I think uh, San Francisco is used to be really good. I think a lot of cities are having huge problems right now, actually. I think it's a bad time to ask me about cities. I think even San Diego is um, struggling to be not only sustainable, but, you know, take care of our population. And um, Is that some of the cases why people are saying that there needs to be CEQA reform because of all the issues? Like they've changed over the last, you know, 50 years? Well, I think housing is a big thing for folks and the and the CEQA reform because um, part of what's happening in cities, you know, a, a huge chunk of the solution is build more housing. And sometimes CEQA gets a way of building more housing, not necessarily in the places where we really need it. Like downtown San Diego, there's, a, you know, a lot of things getting built, but actually like in Ocean Beach and in Santa Barbara and in the coastal cities are still struggling a lot with getting the more denser housing in there that they need to, to provide a full range of housing. And, and, and people see CEQA and not only the regulations of CEQA, but the ability of, of the stakeholders and the area residents to use CEQA to fight it and to fight housing. Um, and that, the solution to that, I don't know. I think a lot of folks have thrown around, um, then we need to reform the litigation process, right? So, and I think that makes sense, but that's really for, you know, attorneys to discuss, um, talking about the timing um, once a, a project is litigated, you know, how long that it'll take, you know, shortening those and that makes a lot of sense because of financial reasons. And when you're a developer, you know, timing is everything. Um, so if we can get through the litigation process faster, I think that would help. And there's also, you know, a lot of confusion for, from non-CEQA practitioners about exemptions and why we would have some exemptions for projects and why we would have not exemptions for other projects. And specifically, I'm thinking, you know, we made an exemption for Olympic stadiums, for, um, you know, basketball stadiums, for stadiums in the Olympics and all of these big economic development opportunities because politically it would serve the community um, economically economically, even though it would have significant, likely to have significant environmental impacts. And yet there are environmentally beneficial projects like the one um, I was working on down at the Salton Sea that produces 100% renewable energy and clean lithium for electric vehicles that would really change the clean auto supply chain and address a lot of our emissions issues. There's no streamlining for that. Um, and jurisdictions are can be very risk adverse and not even want to use program EIRs or SQL 15183 tiering from those program EIRs, even if a project's consistent, just because they're scared of litigation from labor unions and various other people. So it's it's highly complicated. Yeah. And I would say to people who want to throw SQL out completely, I would I would say get to know it a little bit more because there are exemptions and there are existing streamlining tools that can be used. 
And you can also participate in your local jurisdiction as well as AEP and our lobbyists in Sacramento and the legislative committee in proposing new exemptions for projects that you do want to see. So that projects that are environmentally beneficial can save time and money um, and still go through a public process, but not have to go do a pro- do a massive EIR that takes a couple of years. And yeah. it, it's just um, it's just so complicated. <laughs> they don't. The legislators don't do us any favors with those exemptions, right? Because here we are trying to defend CEQA in the process, um, and then they will go and exempt an entire stadium. Um, under, you know, because they've already in their minds, they've already weighed the benefits and of of the project, which is something that we will eventually get there. Right. If they give us a chance, the CEQA process in EIRs, if you have a significant unavoidable impact, we do get to at that point weigh the benefits, economic and social benefits of a project. So what they've done with their legislation is they just balance that for us right off the bat. Right. And they've said, it doesn't matter what the unavoidable impacts are. This project is more beneficial. Um, and it doesn't help us because they they do that, you know, for the Olympics. They'll do that for stadiums. But then, like you said, Laurel, they don't do that for environmental beneficial projects. I worked on the San Diego uh, Lagoon um, down in San Diego, and they were only making it better. I mean, it was only going to improve water quality back and forth up the San Diego River and back, you know, but we were still doing this giant EIR, EIS, NEPA CEQA document, you know, um, and that's where I thought, well, you know, legislators go ahead and, you know, exempt this one because we'll just get to the environmental benefit much, much quicker. And then they did this again, just recently with the Berkeley case when um, when the courts had denied, you know, the Berkeley the the um, the Berkeley case and the legislators came in and said that. Um, what did they say that uh, enrollment is not a CEQA issue and out in the long range development plans of these universities that that would that. Uh, Enrollment is a secret issue. Well, that doesn't exactly take away the issue that we were grappling with, which was housing for students <laughs> near the university. So um, I think often, you know, as in most areas of life, uh, politics makes it more complicated than it needs to be. I think there's a lot of legislation that's proposed with the intent of making things go faster, better, easier, stronger. And they have unintended consequences um, in California because we have an entangled regulatory system where we have local, state and federal, but local um, and state laws around the environment that are different. Like, even if you're exempt from CEQA, you still likely have to get a permit from the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, from the Regional Water Quality Control Board, from all these other state agencies for your impacts on the environment, for your impacts to resources that they protect under different laws, like the State Endangered Species Act or Clean Water Act, as delegated by the EPA and the federal government. There are, I I struggle sometimes in communicating this with developers that, okay, Great, you might be able to get a CEQA exemption, um, but that does not keep you from having environmental permits. It doesn't keep you from having land entitlement permits. You still have to do all these other um, requirements. And sometimes 
the strategy can become cofangled and really messed up. If you take one agency out, so then your lead agency under CEQA or your lead agency under NEPA becomes a different agency, they might have a longer process than if you, you had the other agency being the lead agency. Um, it, it's, it's complicated in that way and, and interconnected where I do think also the public gets confused where they say, oh, if you're exempting this from CEQA, we're going to have these incredible environmental impacts and you're just going to be able to do whatever you want. That's actually not a balanced view either. You will have a lot of permits to go through to build nearly anything. Yeah, high-speed rail. Yeah, they said that wasn't going to go through any environmental (laughs) permits. Yeah, it's got more than anything. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it, it it is quite confusing. And that's and that sort of goes to the argument of, oh, without CEQA, there's still plenty of environmental uh, regulations that apply. Um, and that's only when you have a federal or state resource, right? So, and there's a lot of places that we wanna develop without wetlands or, you know, open streams or water courses or, you know, any sort of sensitive habitat. And that's- I think- mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where, like you said, interrupt you. Go ahead. It just needs to be streamlined. Yes, I would say I'm a big proponent of streamlining CEQA and um, updating or reforming CEQA so that it supports environmentally beneficial projects. So they're streamlining for projects that have a positive impact on the environment, not just prohibiting or or addressing projects that have a negative impact. But how do we address the positive ones? And that's why I just don't think that we should be throwing CEQA out entirely. Obviously, being a practitioner, I know the intricacies of it. I understand why people, the politicians and the public are frustrated and want to uh, get rid of it because maybe it's a hurdle to getting some projects done um, at all because CEQA is such a big cost. Um, You know, maybe sometimes it is very political and it's politicized so the community isn't going to get what they want anyway so I understand all those complexities but to throw it out altogether would mean for me um, I as a citizen would not be aware of what's going on unless I really really constantly engaged yeah. myself and like yeah. really asked a lot of questions and, and who has time for we're that? just too busy yeah modern <laughs> lives to be that engaged exactly yeah, yeah. Um, it serves its purpose. It's not an end-all solution, but uh, it serves its purpose. And, and it does need to be reformed, and it has been reformed. And that's part of the message of AEP, and especially when we get up to uh, our annual la- annual legislative committee days up in the Capitol in Sacramento is, you know, uh, and they ask us, too, of the legislators, you know, we just did this last year. Who has used it? You know, it was just a good idea. Like, yeah, yeah. I had a project. It was great. Um, so AEP is, it's a big factor in that. That's, um, I'm glad we got to talk about that because that is, that is available to AEP, to members, to folks that just, you know, want to talk about that. You know, the legislators, they don't do things in a vacuum. So Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Kristen, for joining us and kicking off our CEQA series for the podcast. And before we get into our wrap up, is there any 
any other thoughts closing? I mean, I thought you bundled up very nicely, but <laughs> the floor is yours. If there's anything else to add. Um, I'm with Laurel. I, uh, you know, I know, I know I have a biased opinion because I'm a secret practitioner and I have been, and I've done this. I, as I explained in the beginning of the podcast, you know, this is all I've ever done, <laughs> but, uh, it, it, yeah, to throw it out altogether, um, is a mistake on both ends. Um, but to, um, to work within it and to work within the tools that we have and continue to work with those, um, is my pleasure. And I, I really enjoy doing that. And, um, it makes life interesting. Sounds like it. Well, thanks again. We will get into our wrap up rapid five. All right. Okay. So your, what is your favorite daily habit? Feeding my animals. Oh. <laughs> well, I love them. I have to ask this. What kind of animals do you have? Including children? Uh, <laughs> they're not even around. They're very old. Um, I have two chickens, five cats and one cute dog. Oh, yay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Three things you'd bring to a deserted island. Three things. Um, I definitely need, I would bring like an almond tree so I could plant an almond tree. Um, a whole thing of wine, as long as I was going to be on the deserted island. So like a wine cellar. Can I bring that? Yes. Um, <laughs> and suntan lotion. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you touched on this earlier, but look, just to uh, give you another chance to reiterate it is your favorite environmental policy. Definitely. Yeah. Vehicle miles traveled and greenhouse gas emissions because it's, it ties, uh, it ties significant location. And I think that's really important when we're planning and um, solving our environmental problems. Okay. Your favorite flora or fauna? Um, any flowers. I love flowers. Uh, my favorite flowers to get at the flower market have been rose lilies. So I'll say rose lilies or lily roses. They are lilies, but they open up like a rose, like with several different petals. They're gorgeous. Oh, pretty. All right. And finish this thought. Wouldn't it be cool if? If everybody listened to me at all times. <laughs> You're here. Thank you so much, Kristen. Loved Thank having you. Guys. you. Thanks very, very much. Look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, Thank you. Yes. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As a new podcast, it really helps us if you share with friends and colleagues that may enjoy this podcast as well. And please subscribe or follow the podcast to be alerted for new episodes. If you want to submit a shout out, please send a voice memo that's under one minute to podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org. That's podcast with an S at the end, podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org. Or please send any feedback you'd love to share. Thank you.